Welcome to the Legendarium. Book 5, Enchanter's Endgame. This is uh, bringing our Belgariad series to a close. It goes about as well as you might expect, which is to say, uh, well, at least we had fun making it. Hello, podcast listeners. Uh, it's the Legendarium Podcast brought to you by Audible.com. Make sure that you head to thelegendariumpodcast.com so that you can sign up for your one-month free trial of Audible, the world's leading uh, provider of audiobooks. Uh, do it. Support the podcast. If you are not already an Audible listener, this is a good way for you to give it a shot and to help us out in the process. Every time you sign up for Audible, a bunny gets its wings and we get 15 bucks. So, or I don't even know how much it is. I really just am making stuff up now. First thing here is that Craig has figured out a way to not have us interrupt him in the first few seconds of the podcast. <laughs> he knows we can't interrupt the uh, the audible piece. Yeah, you, you know, one of these days we're going to figure out how to say the audible piece for him while he's saying the audible piece. Each of us will take one word at a time. Make the legendarium. I don't know how he turned into speak and spell, apparently. We're going to have some fun with that, though. It would be easier if he didn't come up with it as he was going. <laughs> My name is Craig Hanks, uh, your long-suffering host, and with me, as always, are my... Idiot, idiot companions. Uh, now, his tones are dulcet and his abs are flabby. It's Todd Wenty. Hey, don't, what you call him flabby? <laughs> and his face isn't even good enough for radio, so he got into podcasting. It's Ken Johnson. Oh, you have no idea how true that is. And he's so saucy, I eat him with spaghetti. It's Ryan Bruckman. I'm a, I'm a little bit marinara, a little bit bolognese. Ooh. <laughs> that was nice. Uh, okay, so we are coming to you... Uh, on location at uh, the only place that we could record uh, that was not in my house. So because uh, they're cheap, we are at the, the Hall of the Raven King. <laughs> there you go. Hey, we, is... yeah, let's go with that. Uh, either that, we're either at the Hall of the Raven King or uh, we're at the Farmington City Community Arts Center, uh, which is where Ryan is uh, directing his play, and so we're stealing him for a few minutes to record tonight. Uh, because, quite frankly, we're not going to wait until the play's run is over in three weeks to give you guys an episode on uh, the Belgariad Book 5. Uh, I've been looking forward to it for a while, and I'm pretty sure you guys have too. Enchanter's Endgame. It's about time we got talking about this, boys. Oh, it's, yes. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, we're here in this building, which, if you've ever been to Utah... Uh, if you know anything about Utah, you can't throw a rock without hitting a Mormon church, right? I'm pretty sure this building was designed and built by the same people who did all the Mormon chapels back in the 90s because I feel like I'm in church right now. Pretty much. Right. Yeah. I think they just took the spare parts from other ones they built and threw it together here. Yeah, as they, as they retrofitted Mormon churches, they brought the parts here. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, all right. Um, now, yeah. today we are doing Enchanter's Endgame, and uh, there will be one more voice on the podcast that uh, you should get familiar with, uh, so I'll introduce him. Okay, so I'm Andrew Bayless, and I'm uh, uh, just finishing up a master's in linguistics at the University of Utah. Uh, Andrew, now that's a, that's a recording. I took a chance uh, and uh, recorded with Andrew a little bit earlier this week. And uh, we discussed his paper, which we've we've all talked about here around the table before, which is basically he went through and talked about uh, or, or uh, researched the pronunciation in uh, in the Belgariad, which is something that we've all struggled with, right? Most uh, of us have. Anyway, uh, most of us have just ignored the fact that the rest of us have struggled with it. Pretty much. <laughs> um, anyway, you guys want to hear about his paper a little bit? Yeah, please. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Now, when you were an undergrad, if I'm not mistaken, is when you went back and wrote this paper on the pronunciation of places and names within the Belgariad. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, well, so the funny thing about this, and this maybe I'm uh, betraying a little bit how much of a nerd I am. This wasn't <laughs> like... It, it was during my, my linguistics degree, but it wasn't for a class or anything. It was just something that I I was reading through it, and as I went, I kind of made notes, and once I was done, I said, I'm going to put these all together into a, into a, a linguistics paper. So, I thought I was a nerd. You know, so anybody listening out there, I mean, 
you already know that the people on this podcast are nerds, but uh, I may have just upped the nerd level a little bit. Well, you so. know, you bring up something interesting, too. though, in that it, I've read many a fantasy book, and some of them, mm-hmm. like this one, lack a pronunciation guide in the front, or, or the back, for yeah, that matter. Yeah. Do you feel like mm-hmm. that... Uh, th- do you feel like that's needed for these books? Is that why you created one yourself? Or do you feel like it's okay if they oh, leave it out? No, I, I feel like it's definitely it's definitely helpful. And yeah, I would even say it's needed, right? Because, uh, you know, there there's too often that you're reading a book and there's this name that you, you know, you've read it a hundred times, but you've never actually sat down and taken the time to parse out each syllable to figure out how to pronounce it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I've had I've had books before where I read a name and I get halfway through the book and realize I still don't know how to say this guy's name, like like not even close to it because I just see like oh that name starts with a G and ends with an N and that's that guy, right? Right. Um, and I think a pronunciation guide would be helpful. Now that the problem, of course, is you know you get people who are going to read it and say it in their mind a certain way, and then they're not going to like the the prescribed pronunciation right kind of like if you you know like when you do movie casting for a book and people say well that's not how i pictured them at all even if it was the way the author described it you know we have we kind of like to create our own little world when we're reading books right so right um anyway so i just wanted to give you guys a little taste of just how nerdy andrew is uh we'll probably hear some more from him on future podcasts and actually i've got a few more clips uh, so uh, i'll play some stuff from him but a little later i gotta get a hold of that paper um i i really wanted to introduce that before we got into this book itself but uh i don't know how do you guys feel about about uh, stuff like that pronunciation guides yay nay do generally you care? speaking i love i love pronunciation guides and when and glossaries when books have them i've I don't know. I've always been kind of a sucker for reference books in that sort of sense. So when they have pronunciation guides and and glossaries and that, I just I just kind of pour through them. Although I I'm kind of particular when on pronunciations of names in books and stuff. And, and basically, it's when I I don't care how somebody says it or what's right or wrong until I hear the author say this is how it's pronounced or mm-hmm. you know or somebody say that of their own name this is how it's pronounced that sort of thing then i say that's the gospel truth other until then i mean we can yeah. argue the semantics of barak or barak you know there's actually an know. author who yeah. lost his fight uh, and we're going to be talking about him soon i think that's the next series that we'll do and that's terry brooks yes uh, terry brooks when he wrote the sword of shanara came out and said no it's shanara and everybody said, oh, okay, yeah, no. thanks. Yeah, no, it's Shannara. <laughs> nobody cared. Uh, and so now that the... Reminds me of the story of Joel Theismann. And I, I, I mean, I could be getting my history wrong, but I'm pretty sure on this one. Anyway, and now they're doing the TV series, and uh, and he just gave up. It's Shannara now. So There was recently just an article about um, J.K. Rowling came out and oh, said... Oh, yeah, 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 I saw that. I'm the only person in the world who pronounces Voldemort as Voldemort. The T is silent, and everyone's like, that's nice, don't <laughs> care. <laughs> He's still he who must not be named. Pretty much. Anyway, uh, we spent okay. like 10 minutes not talking about Enchanter's Endgame. Yeah, I know, seriously, I was just going to say, Ryan, take us home, buddy. Home? Well, well, we are coming to the conclusion of our Enchanter's Endgame story, but as with every other book in this series, we have to start with a beautiful prologue. This one gives you the opportunity to jump into the mind of a sociopath, much like any of the four of us sitting at this table. Okay? Uh, we get a narcissistic s- sociopath. Absolutely. Uh, we get to see the view of the story of the orb from Torax perspective, which is something that we've started to get a lot through this story, is varying perspectives on the same story. But uh, we're going to jump ahead because as cool as that is, it's a great thing to read. It's really the story of Gary and his team that we really want to know about, right? Which, the thing about this book, um, it's hard to summarize. Todd and I were talking about this a little earlier. It's hard to summarize because everything is happening at the same time. It's a meanwhile in Cathol Mishrak and meanwhile here, meanwhile there. So I'm going to give you the best I can summary of what's going on here. Uh, We'll start with Gary and his team. They're... They're traveling along the long north road through a country whose name I have difficulty pronouncing. Which one? The north with the mer... Morindim. Morindim. The M&Ms. All right. 
where they run into a group of magic users whose version of magic is quite a bit different than that which we're used to. And uglier. Oh man, so cool. You don't know that. Beauty's in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> Beauty is in the eye of the Pokeball. <laughs> <laughs> well, this form of magic requires them to capture demons inside of a form created by the will of the summoner, and then they will do the will of the summoner as long as they can hold that form. If they don't, well, let's just say it doesn't end well. All right. Gary and then and his team, uh, they do have to fight one of those battles, and it does go well for them, and they proceed on. And as they get closer to Torax City of Night, the waking god begins to tempt Garion with the promises of the things that he never had. Family that love, that home. He promises to be his father, Polgara, his mother, and he will live forever in a happy home, which is something Garion has not had. But Garion rejects his offer, knowing that it is a trap, and the enraged god tells him to that he awaits his arrival and basically says, I look forward to killing you. Well, while all that's happening, and they're working their way to meet with Torak, we get to spend large portions of this book with the varying kingdoms, what's going on, the queens who are in rule, and we get to follow the Sinedra's army while they learn how to pull boats over the top of mountains. Oh my goodness. And engage in an epic battle to get those boats out into the sea. Oh my goodness. Which actually leads to the demise of Tar Urgus in a fantastic fight scene with a paralyzed horse rider. Oh my goodness. King Shohag. And we get to meet the uh, King uh, Zakath. 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 I, I, I don't know. Well, why don't we ask Andrew? <laughs> what? <laughs> that was weird. Andrew? 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 Yes. We'll ask him how it's pronounced. Anyway, we get to meet this new... I thought it was Zakath. Yeah, we get to meet this did. new yeah. king... Harry Ape. ...who leads the fearsome Malorian army, who also manages to capture Polgara, Sinedra, and Erend, and transport them to Torax... Uh, lair where they are met by Zedar the Apostate. And then, shortly after they meet there, guess who shows up? Belgarath, Silk, and Garion. And we have everybody there. Oh, and don't forget Dernix there. Oh, yeah. How fortuitous. It's important. They're all there for the great meeting between Garion and Torak and... The Child of Light and the Child of Dark. They swell to immensity and battle each other. It was so Power Rangers. It was like, (laughs) make my creature grow! (laughs) I had forgotten that. <laughs> <laughs> so they grow. They, there's a big battle between uh, Garion and Torak, wherein Garion uh, smites Torak, kills him, and we get a little bit of a funeral scene with the gods afterwards, and the prophecy of the Child of Light progresses forward. And that's pretty much Enchanter's yeah. Endgame. And then there's a, a massive epilogue. There is a massive epilogue. Yep. There's a few other things that are kind of important to the plot. Uh, we do have uh, Dernick, who gets killed, Um and then, uh, and then resurrected. And then resurrected, but in a rage, uh, after Dernick is killed, Belgarath takes Zedar the Apostate and oh, buries him in the ground. No. Oh, that yeah, was that cool. Was, that was pretty wild. I, and I'm still, I didn't get a good picture of what he did. He drove him down into, like, you know, the, the deep into the Earth's crust, and then what locked him in Just somewhere? Just left him in some Just rock. left him there. You know what? Um, it made me think of Relg, what Relg did. What Relg yeah. does? Yeah. He essentially did that to him. And because he can't undo what Belgarath does, you can't undo another wizard's uh, will. He he's will trapped there. For eternity, because he can't die. Alive. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Trapped in rock. Crazy. That was wild. Icky. Um, so this book, I, I'll be honest, I got a little bit frustrated, and I didn't enjoy myself in this one, it, the ending aside, you know, I enjoyed the ending, but as much as the other four, I had a tough time with this one because uh, it was, it's a bit like Game of Thrones in, okay, now we're just following too many people, too many storylines, too many settings, uh, tighten it up. And then also there's the fact that uh, this battle, this giant battle that takes place trying to get the boats to the ocean uh, sorry, ships, uh, Barrick would say they're ships. Um, it, it felt a little bit like the author is, is uh, moving forward with his plot and he says uh, he gets here to this city where there's going to be this big battle and he just says, oh gosh, you know what? I need to get to the end. Let's make this the end. This is it. <laughs> you know? Like I felt like this wasn't supposed to be the the place that they all met and had this big battle. I don't know. It, it, really? After after all the epicness of the first few books, that 
ending or that that it was uh, a little final unsatisfying. battle. Yeah, it felt unsatisfying. That's a good word for it. Yeah, I don't know why yeah. I sound like that, but yeah. I, okay. I was thinking of that as all throughout the uh, second part with Mishrak Akthol where they're getting the boats over the escarpment and then they're going to have the fight and everything. And as I was reading, I was in my mind counting how many pages we had left in this book thinking this isn't leaving a lot of time for yeah, the exactly. ultimate, you know, conflict and, and, at the and, end here. And let me just put this caveat on what I said and what Ken is saying, which is that we have this thing on this podcast uh, for the last couple of weeks where we tend to really go after the negative <laughs> right away. Uh, I, I guess that's just to make room for all the gushing later on because I, I really did. Gushing. I oh, had a great okay. time with it. I Good. liked this book. I, I really liked this book. I just had some problems compared, especially compared to the other four leading up to this where Things I felt like things were getting a little out of hand. Um, See, and I have to be honest. As soon as we got to the, as soon as we got to the point where, where the battle begins, and I'm watching all of the maneuvering and everything, I'm sitting there, and I, I honestly, I'm saying to myself, I'll bet Ken is really having a delightful time in this part <laughs> of the book. I really was enjoying all the punching. I have to say, I, I'm, I'm a little surprised you guys felt that way. I understand it, but I don't, uh, I don't necessarily agree with it because, you're right. It's not supposed to be the final battle. Even like the characters even recognized that that's not supposed to be the big final piece. Yeah, yeah. everything fell to pot because the their plan to take this city and get out in the Eastern Sea and start just kind of causing havoc, like that was the next step. It wasn't the end plan to take right. it out, and right. it just so happened that it worked that way. It, it I guess that makes that sense. Yeah, like the you know the apocalypse will never happen when people expect it to right it's not going to go according to plan yeah no and, one ever and the best laid plans, the spanish inquisition and the best laid plans <laughs> as soon they die as soon as they meet with the as soon as you meet the enemy your best laid plans are are wasted can i as long as we're picking nits at this point after five books can we i can, just we can pick nits for 60 more seconds and then i'd like to gush for a little while all right i this is the thing that bothered me through five books is the angorax never felt like that big of a threat to me all they had was large numbers and zero brains. You mean and like China? Oh, Todd, I, you racist. I didn't go there. <laughs> what the uh, hell was that? It's a, it's a leftover from an earlier comment about the Cold War. Yeah. During the Cold War period of time, um, and you guys are a little too young to probably even remember this, but the, the, the comment that continued to run, why are we so concerned about fighting wars in these areas? Because China has so many people that can that they can throw at this process and that's again something that was mentioned earlier this books are written in their time and if you understand the time in which they're written sometimes that gives you some insights i think that that's a during during uh, the 1980s china was regarded throughout the west as less technologically advanced um and yet considered a tremendous threat to world stability. Because there were so many of them. Because they could overwhelm anyone yeah. if they decided to go at war. Mm -hmm. And that's and that's what, when, when I was reading this originally and, and doing all of the comparisons with, with where people were fitting mm -hmm. in the political environment, that was, that was the piece that I kept feeling. Oh, yeah, you can be technologically superior, but if, there are, if there's a, a huge horde of other people available to you, you probably are going to not stand. You, you're going to struggle to stay in front of that. See, we see the same thing with, with Stalingrad um, during World War II. If you just throw enough people at it, you can stall and win. See, but there's my complaint, and then we'll have Craig have his way, is... Yeah, it's been well over 60 superior seconds. Superior numbers, and they still didn't seem that threatening to me. It seemed like locusts and, okay, well, we're just going to cut through these guys too. Oh. And they, they never felt like they posed a threat to me and, at all, ever. And I did. I've, I've, I felt the threat. The only ones that ever really feel like a threat, and they, they go out of their way to explain that a lot of the character, a lot of those, uh, the Angorax, that they are not a major threat. The Thuls, yeah, the, thuls, the moment that they have any, even a glimpse of freedom from the oppressive rule of the rest of the Angorax, they, they turn sides yep. and they help there. The only ones that ever actually are honestly a major threat are the Malorians. The the yeah. And that's, it's written that way. And the fact of the matter is, is that that entire Angorak nation is so large, like Todd was talking about, it's just so, it's so big. It, the fact that even one faction is dangerous is still a threat, but I, I can yeah. understand that. So, anyway, Craig, 
Oh no, this is this is Ryan's podcast. I just uh, I, I just didn't want to dwell on the negative too much. I just had a couple things that I wanted to bring up. And I'm glad we got those out of the way because there is there does need to be some gushing. But before we get to even the gushing, I want to uh, I want you guys to tell me your thoughts. The in the last book we set up the Queen's Rule. They yes. Were, they were, oh yeah. And all of a sudden we got dedicated. <laughs> we got multiple chapters dedicated to what they like their rule and what they did give me your thoughts on those chapters uh, um it as i recall it was just kind of one chapter and they kind of bounced around between them and here's the thing is was it interesting yeah it was really interesting but it deserved to be fleshed out more felt thrown away yeah it, it and... just felt like uh, jammed in there yeah you know uh, for uh kind of philosophical or political reasons he had something to say and so he was going to jam it into his book look girls can rule too yeah, yeah. And, and now don't get me wrong i don't agree with this sentiment just the way that it was kind Craig of doesn't think girls there. can rule no he doesn't agree with that <laughs> girls rule boys rule wow i'm not going to touch that one with the, the, the chapters because i want to be invited fun. back to the house <laughs> oh yeah i don't know why what do you think ryan I just, uh, the fact that I made a point of at the end of the last podcast to bring that up so that people could be watching for it, because I do think that it's interesting, whether you want to look at it as a, as a jammed in statement or not, the fact of the matter is, is that little decision, that little bit of exploration affected the whole, uh, it, it affected the whole story. How? There, so the way that they approach things, the king specifically after, after um, things start playing out, Specifically with the bear cult, and okay. they realize what what the queens have done. Uh, I maybe maybe it doesn't have a major effect, but it just their perception, their change, the the way that they they view this ability, and when it all kind of wraps up, uh, I I think that it I don't know I thought that it made a mm. it made a difference. I I don't know, man. I if, enjoyed if, it as a as a plot device that moved the story forward. I don't think it was necessarily as much of a, a a political or a philosophical statement as much as it was a really fun way to close a loop and to make it very clear that um, that everyone involved in these stories the the major players in these stories we got a we got a glimpse uh, in one of the other books I'm trying to remember I think it was Castle of Wizardry where Garion says oh this must be how Aunt Paul and uh, grandfather see everyone when he saw the individuals and the representation of them within the prophecy. Do you remember that moment? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And all of the all all of these major players, King Rodar and Anheg and uh, Barak, and all of these individuals had these roles, but their wives did not within the prophecy. But they had a role to play within the process, and that's what I really got out of this whole deal is that. Um, uh, David Eddings is saying, you know what? Just because you just because you aren't a pivotal character doesn't mean you can't have actions that are pivotal. Yeah, yeah, I guess. <laughs> well, I I guess I'm just struggling to see like is it too late were, at night for that kind of thought? No, no, no. I'm just if you were to remove that bit from the story, uh, I don't see things going any differently. The bear cult takes over when they get back, and by the time, and then when they come back, they have to they have to fight their own people in order to solidify a kingdom which they have saved the entire world, but they can't even save their own kingdoms. So scour the Shire and call it good. Uh-huh. <laughs> and and that's there it, it is. Who had twenty three minutes? All right. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll leave it alone. We'll, we'll move on from there. Um, there is an exceptionally large amount of punching in this, so let's go ahead and gush over that for a minute. Uh, uh, Ken? Oh, it's, <laughs> it is so much fun. It, <laughs> Tell me what you thought of the duel between uh, Chohag and Tar Ergon. Oh easily gosh. the best fight scene that, in the book. That was so much but fun. It was better than the climactic battle between Garion and Torak. You, you could just you could see how the the, the uh, philosophies of the, the 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 point of view of each man in that fight i mean tar ergos comes in and he's seething and he's raging and he's he's basically stumbling over himself with rage and chohag just sits there on his horse literally sits there just waiting just sits and as tar ergos maybe does something else stupid he just goes stabs him one more time i'm sorry what was that one more time for radio Okay. I kept hearing John Williams' uh, "Duel of the Fates" from the first Star Wars uh. playing in the background. 
can't it say just, the same. <laughs> all, all I could see is, is Chohag thinking in his mind, like, this, at least make it a struggle. Really, I mean, it was all coming down to this, and this is what you're going to give me? Come on. Mm-hmm. I, he, he had to have expected more. It had to be a blast. But I bet he had a good time with it because yeah, he's, <laughs> he's killing Murgos, you know? Yeah. And I, I'm glad you brought up that it's more climactic than the final battle because the final battle sequence is, in. if you want to look at it from an action point of view, it is pretty anticlimactic. There's a bit of a fight. And Garion stabs Torak in the chest when Torak goes to kind of slice down on him. But I think that the main reason for that actually brings us to a different point here. Uh, it's not the main focus of the end of the prophecy. I was the, prepared. I'm, I'm going to dominate this because it's all punching, it seems like. But I'm, I was prepared to be upset about the how anticlimactic it was. But Belgarian, not Belgarian, uh, Belgarath points out the whole point of the fight, which was not the fight. It was you had to get there and deny him. You had to get there and refuse to turn to his side. That was the point. Which, if we remember back to the last podcast, Greg brought up a point about how he was just getting frustrated with the idea of agency being dragged through the mud through the entire series. And then we get to this final sequence, and everything is based on choices that can't be made by anyone other than than the players that are there. Yeah, and I I still feel a little frustrated. Um, I thought about it at the end of the book because that was a really awesome moment when, yeah, like you say, it comes down to, no, it's not about how well you can swing your sword. That's almost a foregone conclusion. The question is, can Pulgara make the right decision? Yep. And it is about making a decision, and that, that is not a foregone conclusion, but it felt like everything else leading up to it Nobody seemed to have a choice in, except maybe Belgareth and maybe Polgara. But it seemed, it felt to me at the end of this book like everybody had been leashed to this prophecy and led along to that moment without much of a choice. There wasn't a point at which, um, at which it felt like they could just say, "Oh no, never mind, I'm out." You know that that right. was never a, a struggle within the story, and so that. That final moment, while it was good, it it wasn't enough to satisfy my frustration with this idea of uh, of agency within a, these books. It's a very uh, Tolkien way of approaching it. How so? I think um, Frodo's big concern throughout most of the Lord of the Rings is, I don't want this. I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to be the one that's responsible for it. Sam making a choice to follow Frodo everywhere he goes, but Frodo struggling with the, with the responsibility. Whereas in this particular, in, in this iteration of a classic tale of that nature, everyone fully accepts the roles that they have to play, and they they just follow them. Um, it's a it's a different way of looking at the process. I, I would I would argue a little bit that most of the the issues of getting you know let me off this train right now uh-huh. were addressed too early in the series before we're really fleshed out as to what the prophecy is. Right. And, and it's never brought back. That the issue is never because brought back. Because by the time we hit by the time we flesh that out there, each of these characters realizes what their role is and that quite frankly, if if they did make the choice and that we, we that can be argued whether they have that ability or not, um, if they did make the choice, it would pretty much solidify that the other prophecy wins. So they know that they don't really have their choice is that I don't really have a choice. There is some very interesting agency uh, thought to be had in Zadar's decisions, in, in, in the role he plays. I mean, because his whole thing was, I didn't want to fight. I didn't want to. All, all it came down to was fighting. I thought there was a way to negotiate. I thought I had a better way. And so he took sounds familiar. his agent. It does. It sounds very familiar in, in yeah. you know, circles certain. that we run in. And he thought there was a better way. And then all of a sudden, he's now he's trapped. By making the wrong decision. By making the wrong decision. By making the wrong decision, he lost his ability to make the right decisions. Any other decisions. Yeah. You know, one of the other things that I think is that I found interesting about the, about the process is um, and and uh, Ryan, you touch on this that that a lot of the uh, that a lot of the seeds are sown so beautifully as Garion becomes becomes brought of age. I think all of the other players recognize that their role is to help Garion prepare, and once they've done that, they're kind of along for the ride, with the exception of 
Dernick. Dernick's job isn't over until, well, until he's over. Um, and, 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 but, the, but the rest, um, yes, Belgarath and, and Polgara have a, have a role to play in this prophecy as it unfolds. But the rest are there along for the ride as supporting characters, helping Gary in through the process. And they're pulled along in the to- in, in the wake of all of this stuff going on. I, I think in some ways because it makes a good story. But in other ways, it's not so much that they have any choice in the matter or not. They just happen to be caught up in the tide of all of these huge things that are going on. And there's no way to escape it once you start. It's, I, I like that. Right. I'm glad you brought up uh, – oh, I'm glad you brought up Dernick. Um how did you guys feel about Dernick's role in the prophecy? Uh, it was awesome. It, it it brought about the the most uh, emotional moment for my favorite character, which is Polgara. Uh, she's so matter of fact. She's so stoic. She's all the so time. Sendar. And there's oh, yeah. and there are those little moments, those little cracks in the veneer every once in a while where you know she's she's got some feelings for Dernick but yeah. she never lets it out she never you know she knows this isn't what they're there for right now for her to fall in love she's got a mission you know but then at that moment when he's killed you know her her walls come crashing down I thought it was a fantastic moment and so go Dernick way to die I wish I'd mentioned this way back in book one but who else saw those two getting together come on yeah, from the beginning, you, you pretty you're much supposed you, you pretty to. much knew. Oh. There's very few well, things in this series that are not projected out from an early age. Early yeah. yeah, they're telegraphed quite nicely, but they're telegraphed not in a way that's insulting to the reader. Yeah, that's I, one of the things I, I did liked. love where things were left with her and Dernick uh, in the in the uh, epilogue because Dernick, of course, is killed, and the gods <clears throat> the gods agree to bring him back, and uh, Aldor Aldor asks Polgara. Are you willing to give up your power to have this guy? Because you can't be as unequal as you are you and be make on it equal level. And so, are you willing to give up your power? And she says, "Yeah, I am." They bring Dernick back. Well, they didn't take away her power the way that she thought they had. They actually gave Dernick uh, the will and the word as well. You can't come back from that side of of oblivion and not be a changed man. I right. love Belgarath's yeah. statement on that. And, so, yeah, I, I, and I thought, knowing what more comes in this. I just, I, I just. Oh, I got the I next gotta, books. Yes, I got to read the next series. Belgarath came away as my favorite character in this whole darn thing. So much fun. I love the, I love it. The closing scene of this book <laughs> with Belgarath after going through all this, and we see him as this great wizard. We see all this. He comes back in after the wedding ceremony, and he's half drunk already. And he walks in and starts talking to the orb and. Just totally talking with this inanimate, well, not really inanimate, but kind of inanimate object up on the wall. And then all of a sudden, the orb starts to change color. And he I goes, love, I love the blushing well, the orb yeah, is doing. Okay. Yeah. It's Garion's wedding night, and this orb with the psychic connection starts to blush a pink instead of blue. It reminded me of the end of almost every episode of Step by Step. Yeah. Uh, when the mom and dad walk up the staircase to go like take a bath or something. <laughs> uh, um Okay, let's uh, let's switch gears before we go to the next subject. Um, do you guys want to practice some ridiculous pronunciation yes. from these books? All right, here's Andrew again. I hope this isn't putting you too much on the spot here. I don't know how long it's been since you looked at all these names, but uh, can you drudge any of those up, like the ones that you think yeah, are, yeah. are pretty simple and the ones you think are really tough? Yeah, sure thing. So I've got the paper in front of me, actually, and... I mean, there are some that are pretty, pretty straightforward, right? Like you read Arendia and it seems like that's just about the only way to say Arendia. Right. But then you've got other names that are, I mean, no matter how familiar you are with fantasy, you know, fantasy place names or people names, you're not necessarily going to know how to say. And one of these, a lot of these are like the, uh, the Murgo cities and stuff like that. So the, the big one is actually the Murgo country, which when I first read the book, I just said it, Thol Murgos, right? So it's C-T-H-O-L. Right. Thol. And, um, but when I, was, when I was writing this up, I, I tried to do a little research. And um, so it turns out the only other place in fantasy that the C-T-H combination is used at the start of a word is uh, with H.P. Lovecraft's Cthulhu, Cthulhu. stories. Yeah. Right. 
and and I've always said that as a Cthulhu, you know, just like a K sound and then a TH sound, and that's it. But I read I read a little bit, and he actually had a pronunciation that he said was the correct pronunciation, which is Cthulhu, <laughs> and um, so I thought, well, well, what if it's very likely that he was exposed to those books? They were a big cultural phenomenon at the time. What if he was trying to kind of allude to that? with the names of the Murgo cities and the Murgo people and even the Murgo country. Um, and so based on that, I posited a pronunciation of Cholmurgos. What's cool about it is the map that I mentioned before actually seems to go along with that. So they spell it differently. They spell it C-H-T-H-A-L-L, yeah. which kind of implies, so the C-H is like a H sound. And then you've got the TH. So it kind of all mixes together into this a little bit ugly sounding to the, you know, to the, to Western, the Western ear, ear maybe. Yeah, this Murgos thing. But um, but I think it's the right amount of foreignness that he was kind of looking for when he wrote these books, right? It's something that Westerners can't really even pronounce. And he constantly talks about the Murgos and their guttural accents. Yeah, oh, that's and, a good uh, point. Is he this, getting in the shower? You know, this is about as guttural as you could possibly get, right? right. Something that's pronounced chlal. Let me throw... That is right. one thing that I always kind of um, gathered. I, I kind of noticed that early in the, in the books, too, is the Western side, the Arons and the Sindars and, and everybody, they're... The Alorns, they're all very easy to say. And then you've got the bad guys on the other side with their funky... Lots of words with lots of consonants and you know, so, excessive phlegm. When you spell Ken, with phlegm, Ken, you uh, spoke first, so you want to take a stab at that? Which one? Murgos. <laughs> That's good enough. All right. <laughs> anyway, let's go on with this uh, with this book, Ryan. Uh, what else? This we got? is very interesting stuff from Heindruch. <laughs> this He's is why we don't me. record late at night. He's gonna hate me for that. Uh man, that totally broke my train of thought. What were we, what were we talking about last? Um, Let's see, blushing or I've, I've got some things that I can bring up if you want. Certainly, Craig, go ahead and and and. Um, okay, bring uh, up away. Bring the, up away. Yes. The mother of the gods is the universe. The, the universe. universe. The universe. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Captain Planet. <laughs> um, I was just. I was so. Happy to to learn about Ul and him being the father of the gods and and oh my gosh this this god that didn't want to adopt any of these uh, people on the earth and he was kind of reluctant and he finally said okay fine Ul goes I'll I'll take you on uh, and he turns out to be the father of the gods how great uh, and then there's so that was kind of fun but then there are these. Uh, slight references uh, or I guess they're really quite resounding but unexplained at the end of book three and I think it once in book four of uh, you know references to the mother of the gods and oh how mysterious and in a in a book where these gods are so present and verbal and visible the universe the universe just because ah. you can't figure out the plumbing doesn't mean it doesn't work <laughs> <laughs> It was just like when we found out that the voice in Garion's head was the prophecy. Really? Uh, you see, the that prophecy? one I that one I liked on. a little better. Give me like, something. A, a, a conscious prophecy that was pretty cool, uh, because it, the the prophecy at least speaks to the kid. Yeah. You know, the mother of the gods ain't gonna do any of that. No, 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 we don't know that. If I found out, speak. If we I were, found out we were you... never inside Torax's head the same way that we were inside Garion's. Yeah, it's true. We only had the the story of, of the orb there, and I do think that it's interesting that when Torak is killed, he does cry out, "Mother." Yeah. And and the idea, I guess the the idea that you can wrap around here a little bit and take this for what it's worth, um, which is very little, but the idea of mother is the giver of life. So we we don't really know exactly the process of or how Ul and makes how have these other gods these children here. But if the universe is the source from which these gods are created, it absolutely is their mother, whether it's a sentient being or, or not. It's the, the, from the, the material from which it is created. It's a, it's a different concept of mother. I can get behind that. There are a lot of, there, there are a lot of ways that, that this process of uh, in, interpreting 
um, the creation the creation myth shows up. They show up very they, they show up in various ways within our own within our own environment, our own cultures. Um, I, and I think David Eddings is is giving us a glimpse of something that he says. I don't have to explain it. I can leave it mysterious because a it gives me an opportunity to be able to explore it in other books and do some other writing, or b doesn't matter. It doesn't drive the story. It's not necessary. So I can do whatever I want to. Yeah, I guess. If it's not necessary to the story, that doesn't seem like sufficient justification for him to have left something out of this book. Well, I, it, not not necessary in the story for for having a for having a description of how the gods are born. Right. Anyway. Yeah, I, I don't see how any further explanation of the mother would would further any. It doesn't. Of, yeah, it doesn't no, drive the story necessarily. At, at the yeah. story that he's telling now. Now, the thing that I the thing that I like about it is there is there is enough. Um, hinted, there is enough innuendo, there's enough nuance that there's a lot more that could be done with it. And so he leaves himself opportunities to be able to come back and address some of these kinds of things with his own Silmarillion type of exposition. Which is apparently what you get in the Riven, Riven Codex. Codex. Yeah. So oh. we'll yeah, see if uh, any brave readers want to take that on. You can email us about it. Uh, okay, anyway, um, I've got a couple other like quotes and things, but do you guys have stuff you want to talk about too? Tackle it and while the others look up their stuff. My, my notes died, but uh, Barrick's line about doesn't have any respect or doesn't have any regard for a man I don't, who I don't kicks have his own any dog. Time. I don't have any time for a man who, who kicks, kicks his, his own, own dog. dog. I love that line. Um, I, I underlined a couple things. Uh, oh, okay, in the epilogue, uh, Garion and Sinedra have just been married and they're getting all this, uh, they're dancing with all these people and getting all this advice. Uh, and then uh, Garion says uh, he gets what may be the best advice of all um, from Meryl, Barrick's wife, who's been grumpy the whole series, but now Oh no, man. Chilled Book five, out. she was great. She was awesome. Yeah, she I is great. Meryl. Um, anyway, she says, you'll fight with each other, of course, but never go to sleep angry. That was always my mistake. I hate that advice so much because yeah. hey, I, I got that too. Everybody gets that advice when they get married, right? right. And for some people, it's probably good advice. Uh, but uh, for me and for my wife, our personalities are such that the best thing that we can do is go to sleep and then wake up and realize that uh, we're not so mad after all. You know, it, And you hear this all the time as though it's the magical cure-all for a happy marriage for every single couple. And it may be great advice for some people, don't get me wrong, but, uh, but that's always driven me crazy. And there, there it is again in this book, doggone it. I, I always try to follow Dr. Phil, or, uh, Phil Connor's advice to not drive angry. <laughs> we have, my great-grandmother used to phrase that uh, piece a little differently. She said, never let the sun go down on wrath. It's like ooh, very biblical. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and uh, I think you, I think you, there is a certain amount of the personalities of the people involved in it. It it does make a difference. If I let my wife stew, it only gets worse. You know, and I, and I and I I find it interesting that that again we're coming back to the idea. These are these are amazing people. These are these are figures of epic proportions, and yet at the same time, they're going to have to be. A husband and wife, they're going to have to learn to get along with each other. They're going to have to learn to deal with, you know, it, I, in in our world, it's it's where do you put your dirty socks and whether or not you put the toilet seat down. I mean, those those same kinds of mundane things are still going to have to be worked out by these people who have done these amazing things and saved the universe. You still got to figure that out. Yeah. Uh, the other one that I underlined um, is also went in the epilogue. When Silk is getting ready to head off and make his fortune, um, he, Garion says to him, I, I imagine you'll get very rich. I suppose I could learn to live with that. Uh, that's not really what it's all about, though, he noted. It's a game. The money's just a way of keeping score. It's the game that's important. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know. I is, suck is this at little, this game. I know. I, I was just thinking the same thing. Is this a little author's voice coming through? Maybe like, is this how he views, you know, Western yeah, society? But he's, but he's said that before. I mean, yeah. Silk, yeah, is, Silk has been very clear about this. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, uh, but it caught my attention. Here's the last line I liked: is uh, right early in the second chapter. Speaking to your microphone, Ken. Hello. Right early in the second chapter, when. They're walking into the Nadrak city, and Garion says, The entire settlement seemed to reflect an attitude of good enough, 
that offended Garion for some reason. <laughs> yeah, it was, like it was the narrator saying it, but Garion's thought, and I love that that an attitude of good enough, which and I thought I, that <laughs> attitude irritates the heck out of me, and I yeah. tell my kids all the time when they say something's good enough, I say, good enough is not good enough. I remember do uh, it again when I was when I played in high school jazz band. Uh, we all learned the phrase "good enough for jazz." And my band director made it very clear that that phrase means the exact opposite of what it's meant to, mm-hmm. because jazz is very precise. You know. Anyway, that that I I stopped at that line too, and that reminded me of of my high school jazz band of all things. Uh, now close enough for government work. Yeah. Now see, and and when I read that, I've our our organization has adopted flawless execution, which is a a training methodology, um, and a and a execution methodology that the Air Force works around. And one of the things that they talk about is good enough plans that you can mire yourself down so much in striving for perfection and everything that you never get around to acting. And so when I read that, I thought, oh, yeah, I get that. It can't it, Because it does offend me sometimes that at work we will turn around and we'll say, it's a good enough plan, let's execute and go. Because I'm sitting there looking at it and saying, there are so many problems with this that we're going to have to fix later. I think uh, if we balance that out... With If we go back uh, quite a few podcasts to our Starship Troopers episode, mm, yeah, I believe. Yeah. Good one. He talks about, you know, st- you know, stalling for understanding and trying to do that. And, and I think, Todd, what you're talking about there is sometimes we have to learn to balance that. That good enough for action is a big deal. Yeah. Good enough in terms of quality of workmanship may not necessarily correct. be. Correct, correct. But, yeah, I... Uh, I don't know. I, I love that, that section, that, that little snippet there, because it really highlights that as much as Garion has changed, he's still, he's still a Sendarian. Yeah, yeah, he's still Sendar. Oh, that reminded me. I'm going to go right off top. When, he, uh, when Torak starts talking to him and he finally tells him, you know, he's given him the life. Hey, you know, Paul Garrett will be going to be my wife. We could be your dad and mom. It's all going to be good. And he, he, he finally <laughs> turns around and he says, no, I could be I'm your ca- new daddy. <laughs> And it, I, it almost slipped a little bit into there, like Tor, Torak being like this, you know, Jewish father type thing. I go be your dad. Come on, we could do it. the Torak. Was that Jewish? Yeah, whatever. Because right, right, Torak on. sounds like Torah, right? Torah, yeah, they're so you go. racist. Absolutely, we've we've had multiple racist things but it's, tonight. It, it's the fact that he turns back around and he says, "Bring it, old man. I'm coming for you, and I'm going to kill you." And and Belgarath turns around and says, "What are you doing?" <laughs> He's like. You're just not telling him I'm, I'm not afraid. He's like, he's not the only one looking for us. And I just, th- this whole, it, it's a reminder that, you know, for all that he's grown, he's still a kid, an impulsive teenager kid. But I also think he has, that he's learned at a certain point, and it, t- it took him a long time to figure it out. If we touch back on that idea of free agency, that he knows he doesn't really, if, if he doesn't have a choice to be there, then it doesn't matter because he's going to get there. Yep. And so guess what? I'm going to go ahead and talk back to him because guess what? I'm going to be protected all the way there. Even if Malorians and Grawlum are looking for us, I'm going to get there. Section that I had, um, also in Chapter 2, but it was a little bit different. Um, and it was, and, and for me, it was a, a piece that reflected um, David Edding's um, wordsmithing and, and how there are places in, the, in this book where he was very conversational. It's very straightforward. Um, he, and, and, he's, and he's not necessarily... Um, tremendously artful with his language. But there were a few places that he was um, where he says, um, a faint breeze was blowing and the sigh of its passage through mile upon mile of trees below had a kind of endless sadness to it, a regretful memory of summer's past and springs that would never come again. I was really impressed by how he takes moments when he says, you know what, I'm I'm going to have fun for me in this section. At least that's how it felt to me. Yeah, yeah he's a good writer. I'll, other, I'll give that to him. The other thing that I really liked, um, and and I continued to just enjoy, is the way that he um, writes the dialogue between the characters and makes it just so much fun. They they're they're in the middle of uh, going up the escarpment, and Rodar and Anhag are having this ba- this argument. It's yep. unnatural. What do you mean it's unnatural? I'm not going to be suspended in air. Polgara did it. <laughs> this kind of tit for tat that goes on. The, my favorite example of that in this book is actually the moment when I believe it's Dernick walks over to Barrack and he looks at his ship and goes, why don't we do this? And they build a, a contraption to put his ship on. And all of a sudden he's like sailing past, keeps like zipping like both directions past people like, check out what I can do. 
and Anne Hegg's just like, it's not, it's unnatural. And it's like, you know that if he's going to keep going and, and he's going to do laps just to show you what you... And, and shortly after that, Anne Hegg looks at Rodar and says, everything's unnatural the first time. <laughs> um, bef- oh, sorry, everybody. Before we give final thoughts uh, on this series in general, I think, because we're wrapping this up. Uh, do you guys want to solve a little uh, pronunciation fight that we had earlier in the series? Yes. It wasn't a fight. It wasn't a fight at oh, all. Oh, it was a it, fight. It, I watched it, the two of you lining up in corners. wasn't that much of a fight. One of us was right and one of us was Ryan. <laughs> Be silent. Well, let me throw one more character at you just because it's one that we fought about a little bit on the podcast uh, a few oh, episodes okay, ago. Yeah. Do you, I think I know where this is going. Do you know which one it is? So I'm gonna I'm gonna side with you guys against Ryan, and he's gonna be mad at me about this. But um, I think it's definitely Barak, not Barack. Um, <laughs> the one I was thinking of, and and forgive me if I butcher the pronunciation, is Leldoran. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. Podcast. So I don't think you butchered the pronunciation at all. But I will argue that this is supposed to be a Welsh-sounding name, right? Because the because the double I mean, L. Yeah, yeah. And the Asturians and the Membrates, I mean, they are iconic, you know, medieval England. And the the group of rebels is is Welsh. And so in Welsh, the double L makes a hl sound rather than a la sound. So if, you know, his name would be pronounced Lechdorim or something like that. Um, I don't speak Welsh, but that's that's about as close as I can get to it. Yeah, he. I think the double L would definitely be that kind of hl sound rather than the law sound fool of a tuk yeah good luck uh, pronouncing that one, i'm right? i'm 100 sure that andrew just likes to spit a lot and so he just wants to get as much <laughs> phlegm into every one of these names as he can Hildorin would disagree with you Hildorin. yeah well you can take it up with him he may be joining us on future podcasts that, so. would, be awesome. that would be awesome in my defense i never honestly believed it was barrack or Barack. Barack. <laughs> <laughs> and out of his own mouth, I think he's just been convicted. Anyway, yeah, I guess we need to wrap this up and do some final thoughts about the series as a whole. Uh, so give me, gentlemen, give me your, uh, A, your whether or not you'd recommend this series. And I think we all have a general idea as to where we're going to go on that. And uh, why you'd recommend this series if you do or why you wouldn't. And o- overall, what your favorite piece was. Todd, why don't you go first? So, um, after multiple times through, I would say yet again, yes, I would recommend this. I I recommend it as probably a great entry point into fantasy literature for um, a, a young adult that may be experimenting with the genre and trying to find out where the, where this genre fits. It's approachable. None of the books are overly long. Um, the language, for the most part, is um, is easy to work with. Uh, and even with the membrates, um, it's almost done more as a as an opportunity to poke fun at the at the uh, flourishness or the the floridness of certain language types that are used in uh, fantasy literature. So I think it's a great entry point. Um, my favorite thing about the entire process really is, and my favorite character continues to be Mandarellen. Ken, what about you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're we're, we're all gonna recommend this and and you can't recommend it highly enough because it it really is like you say great starting off uh fodder i've got my boys reading it now and i've got so many people who said oh i gotta look into that it i said it uh, early in the series but the the relatability and the interaction and the relationship between all the characters just makes this book so enjoyable you lots you of actually lots you of start early to care about these characters and you love the way that they interact and you love the way that they play off of each other he brings humor into it and and there's you know not there there's a good fair share of punching so you know you got that but it's it's not even the the action it's just so much fun yeah i i agree that it's the characters that really make this Mm -hmm. uh, a good one i also would recommend this but i am going to push it back a little bit to say like maybe early teenagers Okay, um, I'll take you that. You know, if you're 13, 14, 15 years old, uh, that's a perfect age to read this book. Uh, and it's it would be a good indication for whether you will have a lifelong appetite for this juvenile trash uh, that we all enjoy so much. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a quote. Uh, 
I, I entirely for, believe for it. For Tolkien people, they, they got my reference. Anyway. Um, sure. <laughs> all of them, and all it of them all went like this. Back, it, it all comes <laughs> back to Tolkien, doesn't it? It really does. Um, yeah, so I, I would recommend it. I And I would say, even for adults, though, yeah, if, like me, you're coming to this book as an adult, if if you don't... That's debatable. Silence. Uh, if you don't identify with Garion, which is fine... Uh, you have other people to identify with. I love Polgareth so much. Yep. Uh, you know, Ken loved Belgareth. Anyway, so there's there are so many rich characters in here that yeah, there's somebody who you can kind of follow through the story emotionally. Um, so yeah, go for it. We we didn't talk about it, but I I, I kind of know who out of all the the races out of all the nationalities who would you want to be? Oh, good question. I would absolutely want to be Riven, Riven. Uh, no, I that love, would be too boring. They're they're only boring on the outside. That is true. Probably Sendar, Sendarian, Sendar. Send- Talk I about th- boring. <laughs> I know I, where. I'm pretty sure I know where Todd's gonna be. Which membrate? Membrate. <laughs> Actually, no. Tomlidrin. Oh, nice. Yeah. Interesting. Rank and file. Um, a, a measure of uh, a, a measure of respectability and decorum. And you know, a but not afraid to take quality. some money. Yeah. But not right. afraid to take a little bit of cash along the way. Yeah. All right, Ryan. I would have to say, most likely, I would end up being a rendish. I'm, I'm too much like Haldor. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, actually, I might change mine. I might go with Cherik, uh, just because I, yeah. I love the idea of sailing, and uh, you know, the whole kind of Viking sailing, warlike people. Yeah, I like that. I would have said I, I I would have said Algar or Drasnian because I, I love them both. But when I thought about it, the most like me was probably Reven. I'll yeah. tell you, the boring I, on the I'll, outside. I will say and this: on the inside. By the end of book two or so, I there was no way that I thought I would keep any of these names straight. But after five books, I you know, and I still have some trouble. Like, what is Arendia? You know, I can't quite remember, but. But for the most part, yeah, I've got all these things down. That's amazing because there is a lot of geography that he throws at you. There is, but there is a character that is a representation of each, of one, each one that you spend a lot of time with, each of the kings, yeah. everything. And so yeah. it by the time you're done and you're invested in these characters, you know their countries and you know the characteristics of those countries because each of their leaders represents that country so That's well. correct. That's correct. So, Ryan, we need to wrap this yeah. up. I, I need your final thoughts because My, this is your baby. You brought I know. I am Belgaria so to glad that we went through this. My final thoughts on this, first of all, is absolutely a recommendation. There is a reason that that I brought this uh, to the table, and it was partially also a discussion with Todd. Todd, I know, wanted to bring this as well. Oh, yeah, we've been talking about this a long time. Yeah, and and knowing that this would be a a good series, and one of the reasons why I believe this is such a good series and one that works for such a variety of people is because the story and the characters and everything applies to everyone differently, Mm -hmm. and you can pull something different from this story depending on your experience and your personality. Um, part of the reason I, I, I know that I, I had Stephanie start this uh, series. Uh, my wife, uh, I had her start it. And she immediately told me that her least favorite character in the entire story is Polgara. <laughs> you are kidding me. Really? She's well, just too wait. rude. She's too rude and too mean. And my wife hates people like that. Oh, that was perfect for me. So... It was an eye opener to me because I love Polgar. It's not my she's not my favorite character, but she is up there. And I realized that this story and each of these characters is going to res, uh, resonate with people in a different way. And that's what makes this story work. And so whether you are you know whether you're just starting in the genre, whether you're a, a long time enjoyer of it, this story will have something in it and some way for you to enjoy a part of it. So it's absolutely worth the time to read, and it's not going to take you a, a ton of time. Um, and it sits nicely in that middle ground of from the young, you know, being too simple in some of the young adult stuff yep, yep. and the high fantasy where if you don't study it additionally, you may not get a lot of what's going on. No, I'd agree. Right. I'd so. agree. Uh, yeah. Awesome. Thank you everyone for following along with us uh, through the Belgariad. It's been five, uh, Five short books and five very long podcasts trying to get uh, the four of us to actually speak intelligently about it. Uh, so Still waiting. Thank you for hanging with us. Um, make sure, again, that you go to thelegendariumpodcast.com. Uh, check out our other series. Uh, if you're coming to this uh, as the, the your first experience with the Legendarium Podcast, first of all, I'm sorry. 
and second of all, you should probably... I'm kidding, Todd. Gosh. Uh, I, I was wondering what you were sorry for on this one. <laughs> no. Maybe sorry. We know we're being used as a torture method in Sweden, so... <laughs> That's right. Um, no, anyway, point being, thelegendarianpodcast.com. You can go there, check out some of the other series that we've done. Uh, the Mistborn series is... It continues to be a favorite. It's uh, very well Googled uh, and much listened to. And uh, check out our Lord of the Rings series, me and Ryan. That was the first one that we did. It is uh, a sad sack of fun. Um, Bring a lot of whatever you need to to get through that. To get through it. Yeah. Seventeen episodes. We're gonna put that on a shirt. A sad, sad sack, sack of, of fun. fun. <laughs> the legendarium. <laughs> a sad sack of fun. All right. Uh, that should be on the back of our T-shirts. Shut up, Todd. Hey, join us on Facebook oh also at the Legendarium Podcast. Come on, you. And get on Twitter at Legendarium Pod. If we don't drive him into an early grave, gentlemen, we have failed. (laughs) All right. Until next time, everyone. I'm Craig Hanks, and this is the last time you'll hear me ever. Ever.